The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking here at the remainder of uh, Matthew's account of the story of Jesus' birth. If you're paying attention, you'll know that it's Christmas time. And Christmas is a time of laughing, a time of joy, a time of love, a time to be with a family. You only have to take a walk through Sunshine Plaza and you'll see that sentiment everywhere. But for some people, Christmas isn't those things. In fact, for many people, Christmas is a time of frustration, loneliness, angst, pain, and even despair. It can be a reminder of the things that have been lost or perhaps the things that never were. It's a time where the pressures of time and and money and relationships are pushed to their limits. Anxiety ramps us up and depression plunges us down. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that the Bible is incredibly honest about the realities of life. That life is not always chipper as Christmas promises. It's honest with the fact that the best moments for some coincide with the worst moments for others. Walking through Matthew's opening few chapters as he talks about the birth of Jesus is not at all like walking through Sunshine Plaza. It's not all happiness and roses. And the Bible takes us there to show us that even though evil will sometimes cast a long and sinister shadow over us, Jesus Christ provides for us a robust and profound hope. The hope is this. All evil and all darkness that we might come across in this world, that we might come across in our own hearts, all evil is not the end of the story. God is going to win out. His kingdom will prevail and there will be no more darkness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. There will come a day where God will bring justice to all evil. And this hope is not a a distant or intangible concept. It's very real, very tangible. This hope has handles on it that we can grab. This hope is real and practical. And Matthew hangs this message of hope on three mentions here in this passage, three mentions of prophecy being fulfilled. Three times in this passage, Matthew says, this took place to fulfill. Now, already in this passage, already in in the opening chapters of Matthew, we've seen two prophecies fulfilled. The first one was from Isaiah 7, which said that uh, the virgin will conceive that Jesus' mother was a virgin. And the second prophecy is from Micah 5, that was that Jesus would be born in, the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But these next three, which are contained in the passage we're looking at today, they are quite different from the first two prophecies fulfilled. The first two prophecies are really specific. The Messiah will be born, or a child will be born to a Virgin, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They are, we can point to it, they're specific. We can see easily how they are fulfilled. But these next three prophecies are really quite different. They're quite a lot vaguer, actually. No one was expecting the Messiah to fulfill these prophecies. 
In fact, it's kind of hard to tell. If you go back and look at where these prophecies exist in the Old Testament, it's kind of hard to imagine that they even need to be fulfilled. They, they don't look like they're going to be fulfilled. But Matthew is not clutching at straws here to, to, to reference this to the Old Testament. He's not making things up. He's showing that Jesus is the one to complete the story of the Old Testament. He's the one who the story of the Bible points to. The, the story of the Bible only makes sense with Jesus at the apex of it. And what Matthew's doing is he's inviting us to go back to the Old Testament, to go back into, uh, the, the, in, back, back into yeah, the, the Bible before Jesus to see that this is actually all part of one big story, to see the whole story. The main point of this passage is that, is that salvation, the salvation that we receive from Jesus gives us hope for, t- for today from the most unexpected place. The salvation that we receive from Jesus gives us hope for today from the most unexpected place. We're picking up the story from where we left off last week where those sorcerers from the east came and worshipped Jesus. And disregarding King Herod's uh, instructions, they went home a different route route because of a dream that they had and they gave Jerusalem a wide berth. And it says in verse 13 that after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. This is the first of the horrible scenarios that we're going to look at today. We might be used to reading this story with sanitary glasses on, but this is a nightmare for any new parent. All new parents desire safety and security for their babies, for their children. But Mary and Joseph get told that the most powerful person in the region is trying to kill their son. That's a nightmare. That is terrifying. But God warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt, and so they go. And that might seem like a simple fact of the story, but Matthew sees in this event the escape to Egypt and the return, a fulfillment of something that happened a long time prior. He says that he, that's Joseph, stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's one of those prophecies that you go back and look at, it's from Hosea 11, and you kind of, if you look at that in context, you don't really think, oh, that's going to be fulfilled one day. It looks like it's a reference to the past. He's of course, Hosea there is, of course, talking about the moment that God rescued Israel, the God's people, out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the Promised Land. And the story of God rescuing Israel from Egypt and bringing them to the Promised Land is one of the most important stories in the Bible. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again that line, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God gets a lot of mileage out of that moment for a good reason. That's their salvation moment. That's when Israel was saved from their oppressors. And Hosea 11 is another example of this, but this time God refers to the nation of Israel in Hosea 11 as his son. 
And by applying this to Jesus' situation with his parents in Egypt, Matthew is telling us, this little boy is the true son. This little boy is the new Israel. Which means that from now on, all those who are found in who are, part of, who are found in Jesus are part of God's people. This is an astonishing truth. If you want to be part of God's people, it used to be that you had to become an Israelite. Now you must come to Jesus. And that's an important theme for Matthew because he continues to structure the, the first few chapters of his gospel by paralleling Jesus with the nation of Israel. And that takes us all the way up to Matthew 7 even. So if you just look at this with me for a second. Israel suffered under the despotic rule of Pharaoh. Jesus and his family suffered under the despotic rule of Herod. Israel was called out of Egypt by Moses, oh sorry, by Moses through God. By God through Moses. And Jesus was called out of Egypt by God through a dream to his father. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and if you, if you look in the very next chapter, Jesus passed through the waters of baptism. Israel spent 40 years in the desert after that, and then Jesus spent 40 days in the desert being tempted. Israel received God's law from Moses on Mount Sinai, and then in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaimed himself as the fulfillment of God's law. The point is that Jesus is the new Israel, the obedient, the true son in whom God is pleased. See, Jesus was inaugurating a new people who were not bound by ethnicity but by faith. And both the Jews, the Gentile sorcerers, and Gentile sorcerers could get in on this. Previously, it was, the, it was Israel who was saved. Now it is those who have faith in Christ who are saved. This is the salvation that Matthew points to. God rescued a million Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, not because they were a strong nation, but because they were weak. God rescued them not because they showed great promise as a faithful nation, because they ended up being incredibly faithless. No, God saved Israel by his grace, by his unearned favor. And those who trust in Jesus are saved by that same grace as well. Not because we're strong. Not because we've got good credentials. Not because we've got good references. Not because our resumes are filled with good experience. No, it's because we are saved by God's grace to show his glory. We are saved by his grace to show that it wasn't actually us that qualified ourselves for salvation. It's Jesus who does that on our behalf. So we must come to God with empty hands. We must come to God with nothing to offer in complete weakness and vulnerability. Because if you come into God trying to come to Him in strength, trying to come to Him, trying to impress God, you're not really coming to God. When we come to God our Father, we come with the empty hands of faith, in weakness, in vulnerability, in helplessness, fully relying on Him. This is the salvation that gives us hope for today. So let's look now at that hope, looking at this next section. Mary and Joseph, they flee to Egypt, uh, but then Matthew takes us back to Jerusalem for the moment, and he tells us that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned 
from the wise men. Herod calculates that if every boy two years old and under in Bethlehem were killed, then like a net instead of a rod, he would be able to terminate this threat from this king. We don't know how many children were killed by this horrific act. Bethlehem was a small town, anywhere between 500 to 1,000 people maybe, so we're talking about maybe 10, 15, 20 baby boys, little boys that were killed at the hands of Herod. This evil is cold. It's calculated. It's irrational. It's insecure. It's wild. It's menacing. And it's destructive. Evil always is. I don't think we can imagine any greater evil than that which is committed against innocent children. Think of the grief for those families. Think of their sadness. Think of the pain and the anger and the confusion and the despair that would have hung over Bethlehem for an entire generation. You don't just move on from something like that. This is life-altering for this town. There is a poem by John Piper in which he imagines a fictitious scenario where Jesus, as an adult, returns to Bethlehem two weeks before the cross. And Jesus comes across old Jake, the innkeeper, who once upon a time welcomed his parents into his stable on that cold and fearful night. In the poem, old Jake lost two of his sons to Herod's henchmen soon after, as well as his wife, Rachel, who was trying to protect the boys. Recounting the tale to Jesus, Jake says, Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life, dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house, but, Lord, I had my hands, and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave. Oh, Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands. Around the boy she wouldn't let him go, and so her own back met. With every thrust and blow, I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost of housing the Messiah here. Despite the song, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year for many people. So many of us here are walking through a hard season, facing steep cliffs, feeling all alone. Just this week, I personally have experienced the dark shadow of evil in a very profound way. It's taken me to dark places. By God's grace, we're in this passage this week and he's taught me lots from it. Particularly to know that he will bring justice to all evil. Life can feel overwhelming and awful. But Jesus doesn't stand at the other end of the valley of the shadow of death waiting for us to hurry up and escape that valley on our own. No, Jesus goes right into that valley with us. 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God carries a rod and a staff. He will use them against evil. See, the story of the gospel shines right to the floor of that valley and tells us there is hope. Matthew shows us that there is hope because he sees something else in this event. He sees how this horrible event fulfills something that began many hundreds of years earlier. He says in verse 17, Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. He's, he's quoting there Jeremiah 31, which is actually a, a chapter of hope in the midst of Israel's worst moment in their history, one of their worst moments in history. It was a time where they were taken, where Judah was taken off into exile by the Babylonians. And this town of Ramah, it was north of Jerusalem, and it, was, uh, it became somewhat of a processing station for the exiles. That When the Babylonians took them out, they would, they would be held there before being taken into captivity in Babylon. Ramah was a horrible place. It was where the unbelievable reality of their exile was finally sinking in. They'd been warned about it. They disbelieved the prophets, but now it was happening. And in, in the midst of this horrible time, Jeremiah gives a glimmer of hope in chapter 31. He talks about Rachel. Rachel was the, the wife of the great patriarch Jacob, and her tears are for those being dragged into exile, for the children of Israel. And I think Matthew takes us here, takes us back to, to Jeremiah 31, and he takes us to verse 15 there, and he takes us there to consider the next couple of verses that come after verse 15, so verse 16 reads, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children come, shall come back to their own country. Matthew was, taking, Matthew was looking into that dark and horrible night the night that Herod's henchmen entered Bethlehem, and he's saying there's hope for God's people in the dark night. The hope is the baby that was born in Bethlehem who would die and take on the sins of the world. God came to his people, and the exile is now truly over. You see, Jeremiah goes on in chapter 31 to talk about a new covenant, a new promise that God was making with his people. A new covenant where God would put his law on their hearts. They would be his people. He would be their God and would be so deeply embedded in their hearts that they would not have to teach one another. They would know it. God says there, For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. That's our hope. Our iniquities forgiven. Our sins forgotten. Our hope is a future where every sinful and evil intention, word and deed, will not be held against us. It will be forgotten. Heaven is a place where there is no guilt, there is no shame, because God removed all of it and put it all onto his Son. 
you and I, we don't deserve heaven. We deserve its opposite. We deserve hell. But by God's grace and because of his great love for us, he gave Jesus what we deserved and he gave us what Jesus achieved. Victory over sin and death. This is the hope of our salvation. This is the hope of our salvation. That through Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we look forward to a bright, spectacular future. Coming back to John Piper's poem, he turns his attention back to Jesus. They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night. You made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. It's just a poem. But it conveys the unbelievable hope that we have in dark places. Kids, can I talk to you for just a second? Can I ask you this question? I want you to think about this, kids. When have you felt sad and lonely lately? When have you felt sad? It could be about anything. Know this. God sees you. God knows this feeling of sadness. God knows what it's like to feel lonely. He loves you. He does not leave our side. Adults, what has caused you to weep lately? In what ways has evil cast a shadow over your life? It might be health-related. Is it health-related? And, and you can feel in your body the deep pangs of the curse. Is it relational strife? And, and this Christmas, you're going to have to sit at the table with those who have hurt you. Is it unmet expectations? And this year marks just another 12 months where what you have hoped would happen simply hasn't. Is it loss? And this is the first Christmas without him, without her. Is it the feeling of failure and you're just peculiarly aware of every reason why you think God could never love you? Friends, there is hope in Jesus. That failure, that sickness, that broken relationship and that loss does not have the final say. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of Satan and he will one day hold evil to justice. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Every sin will be considered and the books will be balanced. Those who are in Christ will have their debt paid and those who are not in Christ 
will face the judge on their own and they will have to pay for eternity. You see, the first coming of Christ points us towards the second coming of Christ for he will return as the judge. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song that garners hope from the fact that God will bring justice to evil. The story of Jesus' birth and his early years ends with Joseph and Mary returning to the land of Israel. Herod dies. The coast is clear. However, his son, Archelaus, comes to power. And so Joseph and Mary move north to the region of Galilee to a town called Nazareth. Matthew writes in verse 23, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this final judgment is quite tricky because there isn't an Old Testament verse that says that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. In fact, the, the town Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's confusing. A few, a few theories have been put forward. Uh, but the language that Matthew uses here, it, it, seems, to, it, seems, to, uh, it seems to be that Matthew is referring not just to one prophet, but to the prophets in general. He's referring to a theme that they spoke. Nazareth was not the kind of place that greatness came from. If you remember John chapter 1, Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I think the point that Matthew is making here is that the Messiah grew up in a place that no one would expect the Messiah to grow up in. And for us, salvation comes from a place that no one would expect. And I'm not just referring to a little baby here, I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about grace here. You see, if you and I could, could write the story of salvation and hope, if we could write that out for the whole world to hear without God, if we were to write that ourselves, we would probably write something along the lines of those who meet the standards will be saved. Only those who demonstrate long-term commitment and seriousness about their faith will be saved. Only those who have something to offer will be saved. Only those with the right credentials will be saved. Only those with the right references will be saved. We think that way, don't we? And we, we apply those very impossible standards to ourselves. And we think God could never love me because I've not reached the standards that I've set for myself. But grace comes along and says, no, you don't have to meet those standards because you can't meet those standards. You can't meet those standards. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. No one has the capacity to obey God in and of themselves. We need the Holy Spirit to begin to work in us that work of salvation and sanctification to make us more and more like Jesus through obedience. If the Bible, was, if the Bible said, only the good, only those who meet these standards to be saved, I think it, I think it might be a lot more popular with people. Because that's what we expect. But actually, the Bible comes along and says, no, this is a God of grace who fulfills the requirements of obedience on your behalf through his son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved. And when we put our faith in him, his perfect record of righteousness 
gets applied to us. It's imputed to us. It's given to us. And it's so firmly and securely applied to us that when God looks at us, he will see the perfect record of his son. See, the gospel tips our expectations on their head and says, don't come to Jesus in your strength. Come to him in weakness. Don't come to to Jesus with your resume. Tear that resume up. It's no good here. Come to him with nothing. Come to him expecting that he will give you what is his and what is most precious, the righteousness of God. By faith, you can receive the righteousness of God, right standing before God having the perfect record of Jesus applied to you so that in God's eyes it is as if you have never sinned. This is the unexpected grace that saves us. It's the salvation that brings us hope for today. God will hold all evil to justice, including our own. And he does that by placing that onto his son. Friends, receive that grace. Receive that unexpected grace. Receive that undeserved love. Press the love of God into your hearts like pastry into a pie dish. Let that love give you hope for today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.